Hello, everyone. Welcome to Argus's Potash podcast. We'll be sharing our view on uh, the potash market in these volatile times. I'm Hassan Tariq, senior consultant in Argus Consulting Services, and I have my colleague Ewan Thompson with me, who is the potash editor from our London office. Hi, Hassan. How are you doing? Doing well, Ewan. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, Ewan, um, let's begin. Um, can you give us a quick roundup of uh, what's happening in the potash world these days? Sure. Um, I mean, we've we've decided to do this, haven't we? Because we think it's a, a good time to look at the market, um, not least because we're halfway through the year uh, and first half import export data is becoming available. Uh, but also we've had a few months to absorb the impact of China settling its latest contract at $220 a tonne CFR. Um, and I guess we should discuss the impacts or or uh, lack thereof of, of COVID-19 um, on the potash market so far, as well as a number of other topics we can pretend we haven't rehearsed. You know, I think uh, I think it's a great time to get into this. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned COVID and it's it's been remarkable how uh, insulated, uh, you know, potash and the fertilizer markets in general have been so far. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to share um, share our views with some of our our listeners listeners today, and share some uh, you know some some data points uh, in terms of you know volumes that we've uh, seen move in the first half and what some of our expectations are uh, for the second half of the year. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, just just to introduce Hassan a little bit more, he he joins us from Campertex, where he was the project lead on on corporate strategy there. He's also worked with BHP on the um, on the Anson project. I, I mentioned this mainly to illustrate just how much more you should be listening to Hassan's views over mine, but also to get final confirmation on, on the pronunciation of uh, Janssen. Or is it Janssen, Hassan? I think uh, the preferred pronunciation is Janssen. Good to know. I know that I know our European colleagues uh, tend to uh, prefer Janssen, but, uh, but officially it's Janssen. Okay, good to know. Yeah, well, I think... Um, I think the, the starting point is probably the China contract price for me. So the China contract settled in April, uh, in late April. And um, since then, prices have not moved quite as much as perhaps some thought. But then we've had various different views in the market. Some people have been quite bullish and expecting price increases. Some people equally bearish. And um, some people have, uh, have thought that the market is going to level off. And I suppose, in a way, if you look at each of our major key assessments, uh, everyone is right. Uh, prices have gone up, and they've gone down, and they've been flat uh, since the China contract price. Are we at a floor? Well, yes, I think think we are for Brazil. Prices leveled off at $210 a tonne CFR for granular MOP in the week before China settled at $220 a tonne CFR. For standard MOP, which is typically cheaper than granular MOP, and Brazil prices have now risen to around $235 a tonne CFR. And there's probably more room for further increases this year. Conversely, in Europe, that prices have fallen recently, albeit by just a few euros. But it demonstrates that some suppliers appear to be motivated to reduce offers, even when demand is seasonally low. Something that does not usually occur in the quiet months of Europe. And then if we look in Asia, in Southeast Asia in particular, prices are a bit more complicated, should we say. On granular and standards, the MOP prices have only dipped by around 
$5 a ton since China signed this contract. And um, whether the price will be able to rise in the region is dependent on a, on a demand recovery in the second half of the year. But local market participants aren't too positive about either demand or price increases just yet. So um, we have a regional split of uh, price direction. Quite right, Ewan. Uh, when I look at prices and demand in uh, the third quarter, my focus is generally on Brazil, with 40% of Brazilian imports uh, traditionally coming through in the, in the third quarter of the year. I think it's going to be another uh, strong year from a demand perspective in Brazil. Again, uh, if you look at Brazilian planted acreages for soybean and corn, they're both up. Soybean uh, planted area is up 2.7% year on year. Corn is up uh, almost 6% year on year, and we're expecting um, you know, significant production increases for both crops. And, uh, and as you know, Brazilian soils are, uh, are quite you know, hungry for potash. Uh, and this year, particularly, Brazil has uh, benefited from Chinese preference uh, for its soybeans, uh, and it has uh, significantly increased uh, soy exports year on year. So for the first four months of this year, uh, Brazil has exported around 24 million tons of of soybeans. That's compared to just over 18 and a half million tons of soybeans last year. And, you know, the Brazilian real has uh, has declined as well, which uh, improves um, the competitiveness of an export-oriented uh, soybean sector. Positives uh, for Brazil are, you know, quite apparent. And uh, that's reflected in a price, you know, pretty much as soon as the China contract was signed, uh, Brazilian prices started to trend up. And I expect that uh, trend to continue uh, throughout Q3 and and into Q4 actually. And when you when you look at uh, Asian prices, uh, yes, they've been they've been uh, um, you know low, but but prices are have stabilized since uh, the signing of the contract. And uh, with winter planting uh, around the corner and potash volumes uh, expected to flow into Asia for winter planting, particularly in China, we should expect to see prices rise in Asia as well. Southeast Asian prices you know, respond to uh, the stability that uh, the China contract brings. And uh, and we expect to see see that again. One interesting thing that we follow is the correlation between um, palm oil prices and Southeast Asian MOP prices. There's a six to seven month lag, but there's a strong correlation uh, when you when you bring that lag into uh, into account. And uh, CPO prices have been doing quite well or well, relatively well uh, recently. And then the futures are looking good. So with this with this type of outlook in palm oil prices, Southeast Asian prices should respond. And uh, and then you know India has been has been a positive story uh, so far uh, in 2020. The fertilizer sector has uh, has grown um, has out or growth in the fertilizer sector has outpaced uh, the growth in the Indian economy. And you know fertilizer use in India is closely tied to to the monsoon and uh, the late departure of last year's monsoon. Uh, brought about a pretty good rubby season and uh, so far this year we've seen pretty good progress uh, in the monsoon it's uh, pretty much on time in terms of its uh, uh, progress uh, relative to you know the historical progress of the monsoon and uh, annual rainfall is uh, is uh, up uh, again uh, relative to uh, the historical average and this is reflected in the in the overall fertilizer uptake in india which is which is up this year and potash offtake reportedly is up over a million oh, sorry half a million tons this year and kharif crops corn rice cotton sugarcane are good users of potash uh, so so with a good monsoon uh, this year 
uh, we're expecting a pretty uh, promising Kharif season, uh, and uh, and India looks to be a positive story from a from a potash volume standpoint. So we have Brazil looking pretty solid for demand. I think India as well. Are we? I mean, 2019 was not a great year for U.S. demand. Are we going to see some? year-on-year recovery there too, do you think? So the U.S. is an interesting one. Uh, A few things to consider. When you look at uh, the acreage for uh, corn and soybean, both are up. Uh, The most recent USDA uh, numbers show a 3% increase uh, year-on-year in corn acreage and a 10% increase in uh, soy acreage. So the corn-soy ratio is playing into that uh, where uh, soybean prices uh, relatively are favorable uh, and soy acreage is up. You know, Due to COVID, we were just talking about uh, COVID and its impact. Uh, on the corn side, COVID has had an impact as 30-35% of U.S. corn goes into ethanol production and uh, ethanol production was down uh, since uh, gasoline demand was down. Uh, and now that uh, we're coming out of uh, you know that trough in, uh, in Q2, we're starting to see ethanol production creep back up and ethanol, obviously ethanol demand is creeping back up as gasoline uh, demand recovers. So corn corn prices will recover in the second half of the year, but uh, what's interesting is that the corn and soy acreage is up uh, significantly over last year, and we've had good spring application of potash, and uh, we've seen some indication that uh, channel inventories are are on the low side. That said, for summer fill so far, we haven't seen uh, good volumes thus far, but you know it's early, so that remains to be seen. And another thing to consider uh, in the U.S is the impact of U.S.-China trade tensions. In the phase one deal, China had promised to increase its uh, purchase of agricultural products from the U.S. And uh, despite you know, the recent rise in tensions, uh, that part of the deal is is holding up. And I think that's important for both countries. I was talking about Brazilian soybeans and the increase in, in soy exports from Brazil to China. Due to that increase, Brazilian soybeans are uh, enjoying premium to uh, to seabot prices about a dollar 20 per bushel and the chinese are paying really more for uh, for additional volumes of uh, of brazilian soybeans with china recovering from asian swine fever and rebuilding its pig herd and soybeans obviously are used as uh, as uh, you know to produce uh, soy meal which is used as feed for the hog herd uh, china would would like to avoid that extra cost. And on the U.S. side, additional uh, export of soy from the U.S. to China, not only will be will it be beneficial to the Chinese from a price point of view, but it will be beneficial for the U.S. farmer as well. And it will reduce you know, the burden of, uh, of federal aid that the U.S. government uh, typically you know, steps in and, and provides to the U.S. farmer uh, to supplement the income and improve uh, farmer profitability. So, you know, the ag part of the deal uh, is a bit of a win-win. Um, and the other thing is that Brazilian soy stocks are, are reportedly on, you know, uh, dwindling down uh, despite the increase in uh, in production and acreage. So so that part of the deal, it's it's good to keep an eye on. And I think uh, I expect, expect that uh, that part of the deal to be... Uh, to continue and uh, and the Ch- and the Chinese to to increase their uh, ag imports from the U.S. Now, if we if we put all these countries together, Hassan, we're, we're beginning to build up a, a global picture for demand for 2020. And at the moment, we are of the view that we're seeing uh, an increase in demand this year relative to last year. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we're saying demand of 66.7 million tons for for this year, um, 
which might sound odd given um, COVID-19, but I think it's worth mentioning that 2019 was not not a strong year for demand. And by getting demand back to the levels that we're projecting, we're only really seeing levels falling back in line with 2018. And uh, a lot of that demand is for restocking after 2019, I believe. Exactly right, Ewan. When you look at the ag fundamentals in the US, in Brazil, in India, uh, and what we're going to see or expecting to see in uh, in Southeast Asia and China in terms of volumes uh, after the signing of the contract, uh, it paints a, a positive view for the second half. And uh, when you look at, you know, the aggregate, you know, global demand for 2020, uh, like you said, it's it's only going back up to that 2018 level. And 2019 was a was a low demand year uh, relative to 2018, uh, even though historically, you know, 64 or 64 to 65 million tons uh, is a is a pretty good demand year. But we've had supply increases as well. So this is a good time to discuss some of the supply side changes with uh, Eurochem bringing on uh, Usolsky. And when you look at uh, Russian rail volumes, and it's interesting to see Eurochem's rail volumes this year uh, as Usolsky ramps up, uh, Eurochem uh, has ramped up its uh, sales, obviously, and particularly the rail volumes uh, to parts of Europe. For the first half of this year, rail, vol- rail volumes are up to 1.1 million tons uh, from uh, around 460,000 last year. But even more interestingly, Eurocali's rail volumes are down by about 8% year on year, uh, down to about 5.25 million tons uh, from uh, 5.7 million tons uh, for the first half of 2019. And looking at your Alkali volumes, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think this year, with that reduction that I just spoke about, uh, I think they're changing tact a bit and uh, switching from a market share strategy to uh, to a supporting price strategy. And uh, and they're looking to match uh, supply with demand here with and taking some of the volumes out of the market. Similar thing is happening in uh, in Canada with Nutrien maintaining its operational capability year on year with Mosaic idling Colonze indefinitely. And then looking at Belarus Kali and BPC, 2019 production was reportedly up year on year, but their exports and sales were down uh, year on year. So when you look at uh, the lineups at Clipeda for 2019, they show around uh, 9 million tons of exports. Uh, in 2018, exports were around 9.7. So despite that production increase in 2019, uh, their exports came down. So we expect them to be sitting on uh, quite a bit of inventory uh, this year. And then when you look at their announcement about pushing Petrokov commercial production out to 2021, that sort of corroborates that view, and it's an in- indicator of uh, of that discipline uh, from the supply side. And reportedly, they've pulled some volumes out from uh, from the Oceania region. Uh, again, this is also supportive or corroborative of uh, the supply discipline view. Uh, and I think we could probably add uh, K plus S to the list of uh, companies that are looking uh, to preserve price over market share, as uh, I believe they've dropped their production by the highest percentage of total capacity of any of the other suppliers. So we're beginning to build up a picture, I think, of some suppliers looking to pursue price over market share. But overall, Hassan, do you think that's enough? Is there enough supplier discipline in the market? I think the most definitive answer will come from the data. But uh, looking at uh, looking at the ag fundamentals, like we just discussed, looking at uh, the impact of those fundamentals on demand in the second half, looking at what 
the suppliers have done in the first half and uh, what they're indicating uh, or where they're pivoting to in uh, in the second half. Uh, that all points to market tightness and uh, and I think in the second half we might see a much tighter market. Hence, we'll see prices you know trend up. So Vancouver prices this hasn't happened yet, but expect it to uh, to happen in uh, in the in the third quarter. Brazilian prices are already responding. Uh, again, uh, Brazil is an Im- important uh, market particularly in Q3, but 40% of their imports coming through in, uh, in, in these three months. Uh, hence, the early price response. We'll expect to see similar responses from the other markets uh, and other price references that we have uh, in the third quarter. Is there, is there anything um, looking forward, uh, say, over the next six months that could be, could be disruptive to this uh, recovery in prices? Uh, and also, um, I know that you look at long-term fundamentals as well, Hassan. And ha- has your view changed at all for the long-term fundamentals as a result of the events uh, over the last six months? Great question, Ewan. Um, looking at the second half, COVID remains uh, a risk, and we're keeping uh, keep an eye on uh, COVID-related disruptions in the second half. Uh, in the first half, you know, like we discussed. Uh, the fertilizer sector in general and potash uh, as well uh, as a part of it was quite insulated from COVID-related impacts, uh, apart from uh, apart from corn-related uh, uh, disruption or corn-related uh, impact on farmer profitability. And that impact on farmer profitability, uh, again from a corn perspective, remains a risk in the second half of the year, and also from a from a sugarcane perspective as well. Uh, so sugarcane, corn are uh, are used in ethanol production in the U.S. and and Brazil. And uh, you know, if there is a massive second wave which reduces economic activity or limits economic activity and movement, then that could uh, significantly impact fuel demand and uh, and the prices of these uh, uh, commodity crops, uh, which could impact uh, you know, farmer margins and uh, and their ability uh, to invest uh, in fertilizer. And uh, and again, you know, uh, potentially impact second half volumes. Yeah, and I think um, we we can take the opportunity to look back as well because we've been living with with COVID nineteen for at least six months now, and we've already seen uh, the impacts of it. And I'm trying to think of any any major interruptions uh, for the potash market that relate to any demand drops. I mean, for example, what we've seen in, in China in, in February were some delays to uh, exports for SOP, for example, uh, some production issues. Um, but these were largely rectified in the in the following weeks. And it, it was our impression that we didn't see any demand drops as a result of COVID-19. What we were really seeing were just delays, logistical delays, uh, for deliveries, and it was not quite as severe as as maybe some were expecting. And we've certainly seen COVID-19 and the, the myriad impacts of that uh, through Europe now already. So given that governments are treating food security as um, integral, this has allowed the potash market to be, to be well insulated from all the various uh, effects of COVID-19. I think that's a I think that's a great point on uh, government's uh, focus on food uh, security and uh, and wanting to avoid uh, food and inf- food price inflation. You know, if you look at uh, different geographies, the Indian government has uh, pretty much res- exempted uh, fertilizer movements from uh, transport restrictions. Uh, uh, TFI has uh, has supported uh, exemption of the fertilizer sector from any sort of uh, restrictions in the United States. 
I was listening to our uh, Argus podcast on West African fertilizer logistics, and and West African governments have have also, uh, you know, explicitly mentioned fertilizer movements as uh, as integral to food security. So no matter what geography you look at, uh, governments have stepped in and provided support to the fertilizer sector. It's not surprising considering uh, the impact of, uh, of fertilizers uh, and fertilizer application rates on yields and, uh, and need to grow uh, uh, grains and oil seeds, uh, which, are, which are cornerstones of, uh, of diets. And you know, looking at the longer term, we expect application rates uh, to grow further and uh, in support of these yield increases. With population rising over 9 billion people by 2040, which is around about um, you know 1.4 billion people added to the world, uh, and just under a billion of them uh, added to the middle income bracket, and we expect uh, food consumption to rise with uh, income growth and uh, dietary changes bringing about uh, consumption of diets that are more calorific, more protein intensive. Uh, that will impact. Uh, the required production levels of grains and oil seeds and, and other food crops, and that underpins our our long-term, uh, you know, positive view of potash consumption. You will need increase in application rates, uh, you know, in parts of South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, uh, in even parts of Latin America. Despite the heavy usage of potash uh, in parts of Latin America, you know, application rates are suboptimal, and we expect these uh, rates to rise and support potash demand uh, in the longer term. When you look at disruptions to that view, you know, when you look at balanced nutrition drives or you know, China's zero growth approach to fertilizer use, even that is uh, supportive to potash demand. When you, when you look at that zero growth approach, it's largely you know, focusing on nitrogen uh, use or overuse of nitrogen in China. And uh, China is looking to cut back on, on the use of nitrogen fertilizers over the long run. Uh, or phosphates is about uh, flat or a bit uh, negative, but it's supportive of potash consumption. Potash is still underapplied in China, and uh, and you know potash is a is the quality nutrient. Uh, looking at uh, you know its impact on taste, color, appearance, uh, you know from especially from a fer- uh, fruits and vegetables standpoint, uh, you know potash is is, uh, is supportive of characteristics that are quite useful for. For marketing of these products. And again, when you look at uh, some of the other disruptions uh, from a governmental standpoint, the EU has, uh, with its farm to fork uh, approach, the EU is looking to reduce fertilizer use by about 20% uh, by 2030 and uh, reduce nutrient losses by about 50% by 2030. Now, these are aspirational goals, but when you look at particularly that nutrient loss objective, that's again largely on the on the nitrogen side with Use with increased uses of urease inhibitors, for instance. And how about India? I believe the um, subsidy system skews uh, demand for nitrogen, and uh, if that would ever change, then that might uh, open up more uh, demand in India for potash as well, as I understand it. Uh, I agree. Uh, you and uh, in India as well, much like China, u- urea and uh, and nitrogen fertilizers are. Uh, have a heavy application. They're they're overapplied, and potash again is uh, is underapplied in, in general in South Asia. If and when that policy change comes from the Indian government through through their NBS uh, framework or nutrient-based subsidy framework, uh, you know that'll be a positive for potash demand as well. But the other thing I was going to mention um, on the EU side 
was uh, the aspiration to commit 25% of total farmland to organic farming by 2030. Again, this is this is an aspirational goal, but if that if that happens, that should impact uh, fertilizer demands and uh, demand in general. Uh, but especially for its, uh, you know, or organic fertilizers are are a high premium product. So, so when you look at it from a from a revenue standpoint, uh, that might be an, there might be an offset there, but uh, but can certainly impact uh, the use of chemical fertilizers, uh, and that that could be a key disruption in the in the next decade or two. Fantastic. Okay, so um, it, it looks like demand for for this year for potash at least is going to be is going to be up. It looks like uh, second half prices may well gain some traction uh, as supply tightens in the second half of the year. I would say that given, given COVID-19, it's, it's probably a, uh, quite a robust market and has been fairly resilient so far and continues to be. So we would be ex- expecting no huge surprises in the potash market over the next six months. And generally speaking, as a slow rise in prices steadily into next year. So I, I think unless you have any other comments, Hassan, that's that's probably about it. Just for us, uh, just leaves us to say um, thank you for listening and uh, stay safe. And I, I hope that um, we'll get a chance to do this again uh, in the future, Hassan. It's been been a pleasure. Pleasure as always, Ewan. Uh, it was great talking to you. Hope our listeners have uh, enjoyed listening to some of our views on the potash market. And uh, we'll definitely uh, look to do this again Um and see if uh, some of the things that we've talked about here actually come true. Um, all the best to uh, to everyone. Stay safe. Goodbye for now.